As he listened to the cries of joy rising from the town, Rio remembered that such joy is always imperiled. He knew what those jubilant crowds did not know, but could have learned from books, that the plague never dies or disappears for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and in linen chests, that it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks and bookshelves, and that perhaps the day would come when, for the bane and the enlightening of men, it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. In our city on the verge of lockdown. Yeah, strange times. Of course, we're here with Luke as well. Thank you very much for coming in, Luke. Thanks, guys. Braving the, the outside <laughs> world. That's mm. it. It's a bit of a danger to leave the house at the moment, isn't it? Well, we're, we're told it's a danger because it could get worse. And yet at the moment... Okay, so audience, Adelaide at the moment is on day three of a semi-freakout about a cluster that at the time we were recording, there's 20 confirmed cases. 4,000 people have been told to go into self-isolation. We've had 11,000 people tested in two days, which sounds good until you realise that all the planning of the last three and a half months was to be able to test 10,000 a day. So we've barely managed to do 60%, which is pretty pathetic. So today's topic is Camus' novel, The Plague, and I want to contextualise it a bit uh, in terms of what we're going through here in Adelaide, and particularly because we don't know how it's going to end yet with the date, that maybe we're on the verge of having our Melbourne moment of having a massive second wave of COVID. Or maybe like Sydney, we'll have a cluster and it can be kept under control. But what's going on in Adelaide at the moment is a wonderful example of what Camus talking about in the plague. There's the plague of humans being complacent and useless and incapable of getting shit done when it needs to be achieved. So here in South Australia, we've had three and a half months of training for people on the ground to get very good to do their medical jobs. And all the evidence is so far that that's worked stunningly well. We've had three and a half months for the politicians to ask difficult questions and set protocols in place. And it appears to a very significant level they've made sure that at the ground level, medical practitioners, contact tracers, all these kind of resources are in a pretty good state. But then there's the bureaucracy in the middle that does what it does and continues to do what it does and doesn't revise and reform and update its processes until crisis very nearly breaks it. And it appears at the moment that it's this mid-level bureaucracy that has caused the failure that means we've tested 11,000 people in two days when we should have tested 20,000. It's them that can't get a clear message out about, well, does it really matter if you travelled on the G10 or 222 bus on Saturday or Sunday? Mattered early on Monday morning. Doesn't seem to matter anymore. So what we're seeing in Camuian terms is that people do what they do within the system they work in immaterial of the fact the plague is about to rip their ass out which is kind of disappointing after three months of watching melbourne and sydney i would have assumed that a sophisticated system would recognize its capacity to evolve 
and yet, as I've written about in reports for the Defence Department and reports for other clients, the consistent problem systems and organisations have is reforming until they're in crisis. Because until they're in crisis, everyone's vested interest is to do what they used to do. So when we talk about the plague today, keep in mind there's always two sides to the plague, as Camus understands it. There's the disease, and then there's the disease of people who don't know how to evolve. And I think I probably took a bit more of a glass half empty approach as we went for sort of months and months without a case. People thought it was a great thing. But for me, I would say to people, that just brings us one day closer to the system failing. And here we are. As tight as you can have everything running, it's still human beings making the system work. And if there's one thing that humans do well, it's get things wrong and make mistakes. Or to repeat yesterday, which has been what they've done. And and here we are, and here we are again. I, I sort of think that sometimes it's just by the good graces of the virus that it has chosen not to get out into the open. And really, we never had as much control over it as what we probably thought we did. No, we were lucky to lock down early in a small city. And we're lucky in that we're going into hot weather, something that the virus doesn't deal well with. So the opposite from, you know, the virus in, well, bacteria in Camus' plague, because it's bacterial in Camus' novel, mm. is that cold slows it down. Whereas so, with COVID, we've got the advantage that heat slows it down. Yeah, we were. We were very lucky. We're lucky that we're not a, a destination perhaps like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane are. We're lucky that we don't have the international... Mm. We were the international thoroughfare that Sydney and Melbourne were. We're lucky we didn't have the population density in the CBD with people living on top of each other like <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne were mm. and then sometimes we, we ignore that and go, oh, no, we, we, we came out of it right because we did it well. Well, yeah. we've had a lot of time now to get things right, but early on I think we got, got by on luck. Mm. We got by on incredibly good people on the ground, learning at warp speed because they could see the failure about to overwhelm them. Mm. So one of my students from first semester was running a testing centre in the Barossa. And they were updating protocol and process of how to running a testing centre as medical professionals by the day. So at the sharp end, the performance was outstanding because they could see what would happen if they failed, if they didn't adapt, if they didn't evolve. And there we get a wonderful parallel to the plague that the doctors in the town apply their technical knowledge. But what's really significant is when the citizens go, well, we're locked in the town as well, so we may as well help. And with that extra people power, you have the ability to then do new things. You have the ability to put security on the quarantine camp to make sure people don't sneak in and out. You have the ability to have more people cleaning things. You have the ability to have more people driving ambulances and vehicles to move people to quarantine faster. You have the ability to have people going to houses with doctors in the novel. So when the doctor says, yep, this person has got plague, they need to be moved to one of the hospitals. When the doctor leaves, a couple of people can stay there at the house and make sure no one does a runner or goes next door and tells the neighbours, thus you know, potentially risking next door as well. So we get the interesting thing that people who are not part of the system step in and create a whole new support structure. For Camus' perspective, being the chief editor for Combat, the main resistance newspaper during World War II, what he saw is he saw a network built during World War II to resist the Nazis out of everyone and anyone who just wanted the Nazis gone. And it didn't matter what they brought to the table, they'd find some place and some way to add something to this newly created system. 
for those that are perhaps don't know the book, do we want to quickly give just a quick synopsis of yeah, how man. it starts? So Go for it. You read an amazing paragraph at the start. So 1940s in a town called Iran, which is part of French Algeria, it centres around an unknown narrator who we later find out to be Dr. Rieu. He's a, well, like his name suggests, he's a doctor in the town and starts noticing rats coming out on the street and dying in a very um, foreboding way, I suppose. And then uh, he starts to have certain patients that are coming down with symptoms that he recognises to be that of the plague. He reports that to the, I suppose, the city officials and perhaps even drawing parallels to COVID-19. People were slow to act. They didn't want to cause panic. They didn't want to set things in place, perhaps that they didn't need to. And they took their time and in that time whilst they were dealing with the, the bureaucracy, I suppose, all the, then it was too little, too late. And at that point, it sort of tells the story of uh, six or seven different characters, each going through their own journey through the plague. And I can see a lot of parallels to, to today. And as, as David was saying, it, the plague is a metaphor for the, the rise of fascism. Mm. And fascism is an endpoint of sort of what the plague is in humans and the plague in humans is, oh, it's not my responsibility. I don't need to do anything about that. I don't need to step beyond the system I'm a part of. So fascism is the end point of essentially the plague in the same way that you know the locked up town and thousands of people dying is the end of the plague from a bacterial perspective. But yeah, the bacteria is one little thing in the same way a person's one little thing that then flows into this bigger mess. So in the novel, the town is locked down basically from April to January. So you go through a baking Algerian summer, you know, through winter, which actually sounds quite harsh. And it's only in sort of late January that they finally open the gates of the town. The death rate in the town, I don't think from memory you ever get given a population of the town, but the death rate gets up, I think from memory, about to 800 a week. So if you look, eight months, 800 a week, that's a fair number of people. So what he's calling the town is not like a small Australian town. We're talking more like you know a, a regional centre with thousands and thousands of people. And the central characters are really interesting because we have you know, Bernard Rieu, a doctor who, as the book opens, is putting his wife on a train to go away to a sanatorium. She's clearly very unwell. And it's almost like he's semi-detached from her at some level. Like from a doctor's perspective, he already doesn't seem to be holding out a lot of hope. You know, when she goes away, or either that, or the, the marriage is not real flash, or both. It's an interesting combination. And we have a priest called Father Panlu, who is a good Jesuit scholar, who can wax lyrical about any religious point, who through the process of the plague concludes that if you are a committed Christian, your faith means you have no reason to go to a doctor. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting perspective to take. How, how, how does that parallel to people who disbelieve in COVID being a thing right now? Is that in any way equivocable? Is that right? Well, I think it would, it would line up pretty much with anti-vaxxers. Yeah, similar mm. kind of thing. My spurious argument that is based on no scientific evidence says I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anti-vaxxers, if you hate me, feel free. <laughs> I'm not really impressed with what you're going to do to us over the next couple of years when you yeah. all opt not to have the shots thus putting all of us at more risk. Yep. Mm. So we have 
Taru, who is you know, a revolutionary of a sort, is anti-death penalty and is the one who really, Camus uses Taru to explain the idea of the plague being in people. The plague is being conformist. The plague is accepting the state murdering on your behalf. The plague is accepting the state brutalising people to supposedly make you safe. I liked that if you are not doing your part to fight the plague, then you're as responsible for the deaths as the plague itself. Your complicity. You, yeah. It's very much the, the French argument, and you know, the joke's been made many times, if as many French were really in the resistance as claimed to, the Nazis would have got kicked out in about three weeks. Yeah. It's right. like how many people went to Woodstock. If everyone who claims they went to Woodstock had gone to Woodstock, <laughs> you would have been standing room only on the farm and Hendrix would have been able to get on the stage. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Trump's um, first inauguration yes. rally. Biggest, inaugura- mm. oh, biggest inauguration <laughs> crowd ever. Or millions. Yeah, right, whatever. Mm. Interesting. So complicity, if you are complicit, you are guilty in Camus' argument. And he makes this from the perspective, this argument from the perspective of having gone and lived, well, ha- have hidden in cellars for years of the war, publishing a newspaper that if he'd caught, he would have been put in against a wall and killed instantly, and living in these damp cellars, having had tuberculosis, meaning that the physical environment would have been ripping his lungs to pieces and making his TB worse. So when he says, don't be complicit, it's a pretty harsh gaze of step up. Mm. And that's the interesting thing in the book. We have the journalist, Rambert, who just wants to escape from the town, and deals with the underworld in the town to buy his way out you know, to get back to his girlfriend because he misses being in love. So the interesting thing is there, Camus sort of moves on from people who are complicit to people who are passionate but don't kind of see because of their passion that actually unless they help defeat the plague, whether it be political or bacterial, it doesn't matter if they're passionate. The world will still squash them like a bug. Mm. So Rambert, on the night he potentially can escape the town, decides not to, goes back, volunteers, and helps run a sanitary squad and run security on one of the quarantine camps and run contact tracing and puts all his ability to investigate and look after data together in an interesting pile. So we have a traditional revolutionary who's been a revolutionary before, almost sort of the politically aware person like Camus been since his early 20s in Taru. We have the person who steps up like Rambert, even if it takes a while, which I think is meant to show us kind of our, you know, our person in France who initially just went, how do I get out from under this? How do I make my life easier? And in the end realises you have to do something for the greater good or you forever will be the person who didn't contribute to the greater good. So there's a powerful lesson in that on the idea that we is always more important than I. And to double down on this point, Luke and I have already started reading Robert Putnam's new book, The Upswing. So the next episode when Luke's back, we'll be talking about that. And this is how societies across the world, America in particular, went from being I-focused, selfish, narcissistic, individualistic, unequal, undemocratic in the 1890s, and that by the 1960s, we'd moved towards a much more equal world where we was far more important than I. 
and we've declined back into a world of I by 2020. And Putnam's argument in the last half of the book is, well, here's how they improved the world from the 1890s to the 1960s, which means we can do it again. So for the criticism we're making today, that if you're doing an I when you should be doing a we, you need to do a we, and I don't mean do a wee wee because that would be rude and bad. <laughs> it might mess up the furniture. But the plague is all about we. And we'll go back into this we idea with what I think could end up being Putnam's most important book and quite possibly the most important book of the 2020s. Mm. It's certainly looking like it could be. It certainly contrasts how they dealt with the plague in the book and how we're dealing with our with the our plague at the moment where there isn't a lot of talk about where you can see already within here in South Australia within the slightest mention of lockdown that people are rushing into the shops to toilet paper hoarding and which, we're back to toilet paper hoarding which, it's ridiculous. which is inc- which is incredible because the shops never closed yeah no it never it never became an issue it the first time but instead of sitting there going well look I'm going to do the right thing for everybody and I'm just going to perhaps go and buy what I would normally get People have just gone, no, I, 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 yeah. and have run off and have done exactly what we did the first time around when it was widely condemned. Yeah, and this time it's not a national lockdown. Yeah. No. So we've watched Melbourne for what were they locked down for, 104 days? Mm. We've watched people be locked down, but they never ran out of food, toilet paper, and else. No. There were lots of problems. People had all sorts of things to deal with, but they never ran out of you know, water, food, toilet paper. We, we never saw images of people shitting in the streets because no. <laughs> the toilet paper had run out. That yeah. never happened. And it's not going to happen here. No, because we're a smaller population. Yeah. And not being rude, we have one of the big toilet paper plants <laughs> within the borders. We're fine. Yeah, we, like, we, I think that was one of the common misconceptions last time is that we actually manufacture the stuff when... I guess people were assuming that we didn't, that it was going to be hard to import or... Yeah, no, there's a plant down in the southeast, I think, from memory. Yeah. If I'm wrong, we'll correct it, but I'm pretty sure we actually make toilet paper in South Australia. It's one of the few value-add products we do with agricultural mm. products. Why that for me, that was the go-to to begin with anyway. Yeah. That's like, it's just, it's like, it's like a couple of people thought it was a good idea yeah. and then it just became a supply versus demand yeah. because there wasn't much left. Everyone yep. wanted it yeah. and it just steamrolled. The that baby formula the th- thing you could understand maybe. Yeah. 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 The toilet paper, there are other options. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing with the book too. Eight months and you don't get any real sense of how the resupply to the town is working. Like the stuff get left outside the town and brought in. You know, by the end of the eight months, lots of things are scarce. You know, all the good wine is gone in the cafes, which from a French perspective <laughs> would have been terrible. You know, lots of stuff is gone. They're making a serum for the plague internally because, again, they found that the one based on the bacteria they have works better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a thing that you know we've talked about on Strategicon with John Bruni less here but a little bit here on Blind Insights, the idea of sovereign capability. This little town can make its own serum. Mm. We can't do much of anything. We're about to get a billion-dollar plant near Melbourne Airport to make vaccines. Oh, okay, good. Which is fantastic, but it's a simple question. Why the bloody hell didn't we have one? I'm amazed that we didn't, yeah. Yeah. Well, we used to have a thing called the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories that was Commonwealth-run, didn't have to run for profit which meant if your dog or cat got bitten by a snake, mm. the value of saving your dog or cat was not as much as your car. Yeah. Now it is. That costs money, David, so... Yes. 
Yes. And it's a public good. Yeah. Oh, we can't have any of those. <laughs> so yeah, the other thing with the book, because can we imagine today a world in which a lockdown population, people would just turn up like Taru and Ron Bard and say, let's make sanitary squads. Tell us what you need help with. Tell mm. us what unskilled things we can do with our skills as civilians. Mm. Mm-hmm. Would we let it happen? And if we did, would people turn up? No, but we, the people would be too sceptical, I reckon. It's, the whole commentary through the whole thing has been, I feel, I've seen so much sceptical commentary on motivations behind any of these actions, like Dictator Dan, mm. which is the, the Premier for Victoria, who obviously oversaw that long-lasting lockdown. And not massive in international no, by the experience of people alive today in Australia, mm. a pretty big event, as we yes. talked about in a few podcasts lately. Yeah. An event has to be judged by your experience, not other people's. Yes, true. So lockdown in Melbourne, 104 days of a coffee culture in the most livable city in the world Yeah, is a pretty big holy crap moment. Yeah. Again, I mean, so much of the, the – there was so much criticism about what his motivations were, let's say, behind all of that. And it's, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are, or how good your ideas are when you come into this space. You could literally have someone just give us the exact solution we needed. And I'm not sure that people would take it up. People were saying that he was never going to relinquish power, like it was, yeah. like yeah. it was a, like a, a dark plan to overthrow the country by yeah. keeping everybody in lockdown. I'll it was keep all them about all control. In the yeah. <laughs> it was. It was yep, seriously like a parallel to Hitler taking. Czechoslovakia. Uh, uh, yeah, no. Uh, living room. Uh, oh, overthrowing the Reichstag. Or yeah, the, yeah, bloody taking more emergency powers or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, after We'll go from Hitler to Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can understand that. What was it? <laughs> Chancellor oh, Palpatine yes. becoming the, the emperor of the galaxy mm. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you, order, order 66 or whatever mm. he implemented. It was a slaying of the Jedi. That's what, that's what dictator Dan was doing. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Now, this actually gets to a, a critical point. Okay. I find the message in the plague very powerful. That mm-hmm. There's always two versions of the plague. There's the, the bacteria and then there's complacency and complicity mm-hmm. in humans. But I don't actually think it's a well-written book. Which is I, interesting. I, I find chunks of it very jarring. Like when Taru's doing his speech to Ryu on the terrace about his life and how you know his father had been a, a, you know, a lawyer involved in death penalty cases and he realised that you know, his dad was complicit in this or directly involved and being his son in a sense, he was complicit by not knowing, not finding out, not doing anything about the fact that citizens were put to death. Those kind of things are very powerful. The descriptions of how Ryu as a professional you know, deals with it. You know, his wife's off in a sanatorium, may or may not live. His mum's come into the city just before everything's locked down, you know, to look after him because, again, it's the 1930s and, you know, could a 1930s chap iron his own shirt? No, <laughs> never. <laughs> well, I'm guessing it all got a lot better whenever I went to the military and had to learn, mm. but until then probably not most. So, you know, you have a guy whose you know, wife is out of danger but in danger. His mum's now in danger. He's such an interesting character because he is so incredibly uh, caring of people. Like he just works and works and works and works. But really, if Taru had not said, I'm going to help you, I'll pick you up in the car, I'll drive you here, I'll do this, I'll do that. It's almost like Ryu doesn't know how to connect with people at an individual level. Mm. 
So we get this interesting thing that pops up in a lot of Camus' writing. And the idea is awesome, but I think it's always poorly expressed. It's one of the things he doesn't capture well. And that is so many of his central characters care about humans in general, but struggle to connect with them individually. It's almost like absurdity has got his central characters by the neck and they just don't know how to get along with other people. But they care about them deeply as a whole. And I I find that very interesting because I find that very often is my default setting. Individual people often baffle me. Humanity as a whole I care about deeply. Mm. And that's to me, that's why I love the plague, even though to me the pieces don't fit together well. Like maybe in just after World War II when... The communists are the biggest part of the resistance in France and there's very nearly a communist revolution in France. Maybe Father Panlou deciding that, you know, my faith is so significant to me I will not seek medical assistance. Maybe that has a massive political message in a country that is struggling between going towards communism or staying very Catholic and that there's a massive tension. Maybe that's very historical and maybe I'm missing something. But the, the constant thing of someone like Ryu will exhaust himself looking after people in general. But excluding the moment where they're watching the magistrate's child who's just got the new serum going through the last 10, 12 hours of his life in tortuous pain. And that's sort of the moment where really it's just all too much for Ryu. That's really the only moment in the whole novel other than when his close friend Teru dies at the end that we see Ryu really be anything but numb. He's numb at the start. He's numb for most of the book. Which doesn't seem like a very Camusian way to live. This is a person that was passionate about women, sport, life, books, words, theatre, everything. And yet when we were talking about Patrice, Patrice is numb to so much. Ryu is numb to so much. Teru is more alive than Ryu. But also single-minded determination that you cannot be complicit and you cannot be complacent. Mm. Rombard is passionate in love and becomes passionate about doing his part. So he's sort of the odd bod who has a conventional emotional pattern and then gets a, a we kind of passion, a passion to enhance the state of being of all of us. I was probably a bit more inclined to give Rio a pass on the whole becoming numb thing. Because, I mean, he he is the dude that's in the trenches, surrounded by death constantly, and probably aware that with as much contact as he's had with these infected people, it's it's potentially only a matter of time that he's going to to go as well. And I think if, if if I was in an occupation like that, I myself would probably switch off a bit as well for your own being. I mean, can you imagine living every day knowing that today is the day that, well, I know I'm definitely going to see people die today, mm. but it's also the day that I could go as well. I suppose what I, I take away from you, and I think you're right at some level, I would have liked to have seen him more, more alive at the start yeah, and developing the numbness to cope. Whereas it seems to me he's numb from the start. And if we've learnt anything in the post-9-11 world from post-traumatic stress in soldiers, in medics, in people all over the world in different traumatic situations, it's that trying to numb your way out will keep you going another year, but in the end will break you. Mm. And it's kind of a weird thing. Like maybe the war was long enough 
the people became numb, but it didn't yet break them in the resistance. So maybe Camus describing what he saw, that the numbness was a way to stay disciplined and get the job done, and that people dealt with the costs later, which is what people dealing with difficult situations and trauma, maybe that's the default setting. It may have been nice to have seen Rio break at some point and then realise that the, the right way through is a balance of being able to shut himself off but then also open himself up to the people around him as yeah. well and to, and to share in that experience. Whereas we really only get the night where he and Taru go for a swim yeah, as the one thing that essentially takes the edge off Ryu's life. But even there, it's the typical thing of, you know, Camus writes scenes of people swimming in the ocean so well. They're so powerful mm. with Patrice in A Happy Death as well. You know, in The Stranger, The Outsider, we have, you know, Masolt kill the Arab on the beach, looking at the waves. There's something so deep about the ocean and human being small and being buffeted by it, but at the same token, being able to swim in it and go in a direction opposite to the wave. So it seems to be Camus' ultimate symbolism for the world is big and does its own thing, but guess what? You paddle hard enough, you can choose your own direction. If you hit the cold water as you know, Ryu and Taru do, you know, your muscles can freeze up and you can go down or you can power through. But you get a millisecond to choose whether the water is more powerful than you or whether you just fight because the choice otherwise is complicity and complacency with a big force that doesn't care about you at all but will still crush you. So for the spark of human endurance human autonomy, human agency, but human agency always contextualised in the we. I will do the right thing, but the right thing can't just be good for me, even though the world is absurd and I don't really know what everyone else is thinking exactly. What I do still has to be better for everyone rather than take away from them. So we have another character in the novel. We have Tokar. Oh, was it Tokar? Criminal? Oh, Qatar. Qatar. I always get that one wrong. For me, he, he exemplified finding your way through the absurd. Like when we encounter him at the very beginning of the book, he has just attempted to hang himself. And mm. we learn that he's, well, it's alluded to the fact that he's committed some crime in the past that the police are looking for him. But in amongst the plague, everyone is distracted and resources are invested elsewhere. And he's able to, I suppose, Live a, live a life anxiety-free. He doesn't have to worry about being caught or anything mm. like that. And he finds his meaning in the plague or his meaning in the absurd. And he is probably the, the person that relishes the most. He lives he without worrying about the risks. Yeah. So he gets involved in whatever the gangs are doing, organised crime's doing. He sets Rambert up to meet the smugglers who can get him to the corrupt soldiers who might be able to sneak him out of the town for a price. So he goes, well, I'm going to be caught for something after the war, so I may as well keep doing dodgy things. But in a way to help, he becomes friends with that group to an extent. I think everything he does is in service of them, but a bit like Liam Neeson, he has a certain set of skills. Mm. He's able to use those to to benefit those around him. Mm. So it's a funny combination, whereas Qatar is the person who goes, okay, I can't beat the system, the system's going to crush me. I can do well from my complicity and complacency at one level, but also... You know, keep an eye on the doctor, keep an eye on Rambert, keep an eye on what Taru's doing. So you get this weird thing of there are people who end up on both sides of this I am we fence simultaneously with the awkwardness that that then produces. So at the end of the book, you know, Qatar, there are people celebrating the streets and he starts shooting at them, uh, wounds a police officer 
and they end up taking him out with a 1940s-style building assault, mm. which is kind of weird and wild. But again, you see that if you have to have a foot in both camps, the I and the we, it's very hard to resolve and to stay in any way balanced or stable. You know, people in the I camp can keep just making it about themselves to you know, almost any point they want. Yeah, and this is the fascinating thing too with the magistrate who has the certainty of law and he makes a point somewhere in the book that the only thing that's important is the sentence. Oh, we've determined your guilt, now what sentence do we give you? Now his child dies, it's his child that they give the new version of the serum who suffers terribly before he dies. And the magistrate wants to go back into the quarantine camp and help. So what you see is enough trauma can change people. So we have people like Qatar who have a foot in both camps. We have someone like Rambert who moves his passion from the I want to the I want to be part of the, the we will be okay. We have the magistrate going from the system is everything to know the system is important because it serves people. And how can I serve people? Well, I can go help in the quarantine camp because that will affect more people at the moment who are really suffering. So I suppose even though I have a problem with the way somehow just the book doesn't hold together for me as a whole, the individual pieces were amazing. And maybe that's the thing, the individual pieces are so amazing and so important and what happens to individual characters is so important that the cohesion falls away. But you can either be Rambert going from passion to contributing to the we, or you can be the magistrate going from the system is everything to know the system is important because it serves people. So you can learn and grow to get out of complicity or complacency in so many different ways and add value in so many different ways to the we of fighting the plague. And in in the end, all of those seven characters or six or seven characters at some point they choose to keep pushing the boulder up the hill, yeah. don't they? They're yeah. all very, yeah. The plague Sisyphean. becomes their boulder. Yeah. yeah. You know, Taru dies on the day the gates are opened with Ryu and his mum sitting there watching him die. Now, as deaths go, he's died, you know, in their apartment with people around who care, doing 24-7 care, compared to being in one of the hospitals that might have previously been a school or an army barracks, dying in a cot with someone checking in on you every four hours. A very different death, but what a poignant way to end the novel. With the doctor, in a sense, he's lost his wife. Well, he finds out after, doesn't he, the next day. Mm. So Teru's dead and then he finds out his wife's dead. So his mum survived, he survived. His newest and apparently only friend is dead. His wife has died in the sanatorium. Pan Lu, the priest, is dead. The fascinating thing with Rambert, rather than getting on a train the minute the gates open to head back to Paris to where his girlfriend is, the minute the first train comes in, his girlfriend is on it. So the interesting thing you see there that the whole thing of passion and connectedness is you know, is reciprocal. Mm. It's not just that Rambert cares about her that much. She cares about him that much that she clearly comes all the way from Paris to Algeria to be there once she can enter the town safely. And you think, well, what kind of person is she going to encounter when she meets this fiery young journalist? Well, probably quite haunted eyes, but a hell of a lot more grown up than he was eight months earlier. Mm-hmm. A Rambert that you probably want being a deadly serious journalist. 
with the insight he now has into people and hardship and horror. That he can write or talk about any of these things and calm down and remember what it was like to be the person who wanted to run and choosing not to. That's a very powerful perspective to be able to articulate. In a sense, you know, there's bits of Ryu in Camus, there's bits of Rambert in Camus, there's bits of Teru in Camus. I'm not sure if there's any bits of Katara in Camus. And I don't think there's any, you know, Pan Lu, the priest in Camus. Actually, the character Gron or Grom. Oh, Grant. Yeah, Grand or the, the bloke that's trying to write the write his book. Yeah. Yeah. However many mm. decades he's trying to write the book and he has one sentence. Mm. I, I don't know what I'm meant to get out of him. <laughs> no. No, I, I didn't. I tuned out a lot when, when he <laughs> sped read his paragraphs. I'm like, we've been given this guy who is a very low-level civil servant, like Rombert and Taru, volunteers to help. You know, he collates all the statistics each day of what's going on with the plague. And yet he goes home at night, sits in his room with his dictionaries and his thesauruses, and writes one version of a supposed perfect sentence. Something about a young woman on a beautiful horse going down a boulevard in Algiers with flowers. Was he... Is he the person in the book who buries their head in anything but the plague. Yeah, While, whilst, ev- whilst everyone yeah. else is trying to do their bit, he does it during the day, but instead of dealing with his situation, he just buries his head in this one line yeah. and so to chooses me, to ignore everything else. Yeah, to me, he's Jean-Paul Sartre. So there's a wonderful point at the end of World War Two, where Sartre has got involved with the resistance once it's safe to, typical Sartre. Mm. And he and some friends are meant to be guarding a theatre and he falls asleep on the seats. And Camus famously walked up, grabbed him by the shoulder and went, Jean-Paul, wake up, you're missing the revolution. <laughs> so, so Grand is the bandwagon yeah, yeah, jumper. Grand is he just like, puts in a token effort. Well, just, he, he hides an abstraction. Yeah. What he ends up doing is more, well, what Sartre did was valuable. He challenged philosophy. He challenged politics. Is he a likable character that you would want to spend time with? Probably not really. Like Grand's one sentence every day, moving a single word. Mm. Like, dude, you know, write a hundred words on a hundred bits of paper, draw them out at random and work out how to make that the next word in your sentence. It's got to be more productive than struggling. Mm. Yeah. Again, this idea of struggling for the perfect sentence. So in a sense, it's Camus saying what living looks like again, I guess. A bit like Patrice. Patrice is looking for the perfect. Yeah. Tells Lucien to not come and move to the beach house with him because, well, that's not his idea of perfect. Mm. Hey, dum-dum, your wife lets you be a dick. Yeah. And likes canoeing while you swim. That doesn't sound like the ideal person to live in the beach house with. I feel bad picking on a Nobel Prize winner, seeing I would never even be nominated to have a shiny coke can. <laughs> it's it's slightly off topic, but did you did you pick up on the um, the greater Camus universe in the book? I know. Oh there's, yes. There's a part where they actually mention the person being killed in the beach in Algiers. Yep, so killing the the Arab on the beach. Yeah, just yep. just in a line, and then the doctor whose first name is. Bernard Rieu, and then yes. in uh, Happy, Happy Death, Death his friend, the doctor, is just mentioned as Bernard. Bernard. And in my mind, it's, it's Bernard. Bernard has retired as being a doctor in, in Iran and he has moved to the uh, small beachside village to retire. Or potentially the other way around. And that's the problem. You know, we know that Camus wrote A Happy Death and The Stranger Slash Outsider before World War II. But then in The Plague, we have Marcel killing the Arab on the beach, contemporaneous. 
Mm-hmm. So even though the novel is written after World War II, it's almost being set in 37 or 38 like his original novels. Mm-hmm. So it all gets a bit confusing in that sense. But yeah, the fact that he's willing to write into his own universe of Algeria, you can see how much he was obsessed by his home. That he could see that there was going to be a battle coming for how did it get its autonomy or independence? Would it be predominantly an Arab state or a European state? Could they find an accommodation between the two groups or would they kill each other? And this has really showed both Camus' strength of character and unwillingness to want to deal with horrible outcomes, in a sense, in the 50s for Algeria, that when everyone else was saying either part of France and under its boot heel or total independence, he was arguing for it's not yet ready for independence. We need to find a way to have an Algeria that can be an Algeria for everyone who lives in it. So give it more autonomy under France, but not full independence yet. And of course, when he made that argument in, I think, a town hall for a suburb in Algiers, in the mid-50s, both sides of the crowd wanted to kill him. The people who wanted independence and the people who wanted Algeria to, you know, be maintained as the jewel in the crown of France. So by wanting what would have been, in a sense, the most difficult but best outcome, he, he once again is trying to show, well, you have to fight for what's best for everyone. You've got to fight for the we. What do we all need? Not what do we want. What do we all need? We need a world in which you know, there's more inclusiveness. And again, a bit like in A Happy Death, we have another novel where the way he writes female characters is pretty terrible. I don't think there was a female character in The Plague, was there? Other than Bernard's mum. He's realised at that point that he can't do it, so I'm just going to write a story about men. Well, I think <laughs> it is too that, in a sense, okay, we find out that Bernard as a doctor comes from poverty. So to have got out of poverty to be a doctor in the 1930s means you have worked your ass off, but not being rude, you haven't done it on your own. How could you have done that and had the support without parents being totally and utterly behind you? Mm. In a world where normally at 15 or 16, you would have been told get a trade or get a job. For a family without a lot of means to keep supporting a son to try and you know, get to the point of doing medicine. So it seems there's a lot of strength in his mum. We just get you know, told how quiet and unknowing she is. Well, how about mm. writing a good female character? Mm. <laughs> so, again, it's kind of strange. You know, we get Rombert's girlfriend turning up and throwing herself at Rombert. But once again, we don't find out what kind of lady she is. Who's this lady that Rombert loves who's come all the way from France to be on the first train into a city that's had the plague? Mm. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, again, the lessons. I guess this is a thing. Like Camus himself made the point. He wasn't a good theorist. He was good at writing plays and novels, and he was. But when you put such massive ideas in books, almost as much goes unsaid by the characters as can be you know, inferred or directly referred to. The, the characters are secondary to the message he's trying to get across, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, when you look how many times I've read some of these Camus novels, you know, as part of the PhD I never finished, you know, I, part of what was so frustrating working on Camus, is so much of what is inferred you can't make an argument for in a PhD because the markers will go, where's your evidence? Mm. Well, it's inferred, you idiots. Which is part of the reason I never finished. (laughs) Realising that what I wanted to argue and what had value could not be argued for markers. It could be argued in a book. 
but not for markers. Who needed to see that you fit within the standard rules of the cookie cutter academy. The bureaucracy, mate. Yep. Again, uh, yeah, my, my bullshit warning on complicity and complacency were kicking in. That if I generate what is required, I'm not being true to the principal author that's at the centre of my PhD. Mm. Slight problem. <laughs> so there's so many different ways to understand the two sides of the plague. The plague is things in the world that attack us, and the plague is the thing in our head that stops us doing the right thing. And you can see it in so many parts of our lives, and in the, the year of COVID-19, we see both things in parallel. You look the other day, America, 184,000 new cases in a day. Now, in a democracy with more science and technology than anywhere on the planet. Mm. And yet, the bug keeps doing what it does, and you can't change people. They have to choose to commit to the we, not the I. And getting them to commit to that, you know, we don't have that many characters in the plague. Now, we know that there are multiple sanitary teams, but it's still a minority who commit to the we at greater risk to self. The majority just try and survive and hide. But again, in the plague, it, it goes away by luck, doesn't it? Yes. It's, it's circumstance that it makes it. it disappear. No. Yeah, it just stops. And the fact that, you know, as Taru is dying, he both has the symptoms of bubonic and pneumonic plague simultaneously. So you're being given the implication in the end, holy shit, what of a variant of the organism that in Taru is a new hyperlethal hybrid? You know, to make the point the plague never dies, it just has a nap. In the same way that our complacency and complicity in systems that don't do what's best for people is always there and will always reassert itself the minute we stop taking personal responsibility for contributing to the we. It makes it makes me almost want to hope that we do beat COVID-19 and it isn't something that disappears by chance mm. and we attribute that to our own cleverness. Yeah, our own cleverness. It has to be yeah. purposeful. Like and we've got to smash it with vaccines yeah. so we can say we did it. Yeah. We did looking after us better. Because otherwise you will have that prophetic paragraph that Camus finishes his novel with that will come back to haunt us again because it didn't they didn't beat it it didn't go away it just went into hiding and the day will come when whatever it is we'll send those rats out onto the street and again there will be another pandemic Luke do you want to finish the episode by rereading that paragraph sure he knew what those jubilant crowds did not know but could have learned from books that the plague never dies or disappears for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chests, that it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks and bookshelves, and that perhaps the day would come when for the bane and the enlightening of men, it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. Thank you very much, Luke. Thank you, guys. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Hello listeners, if you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.